Welcome to the show where we unearth new ways of looking at ever-evolving life around the world, seen from a number of different industries, cultures, and backgrounds. But there's one thing that unites everyone I speak to. They all want to do their part to make the world better in their own unique ways. It's a uniting passion. Whether they're from the commercial world, third sector, or public sector, from the global north or the global south, my name is Philippa White, and welcome to Thai Unearthed. Hello, and welcome to episode 49 of Thai Unearthed. There's a question that I often ask our guests on this podcast. I ask people if there are any companies that they admire or that inspire them, companies that they believe in and that we can all learn something from. And every single time we hear about Patagonia. So it only felt fitting that we get one of the driving forces of the company to chat with me about why they are doing what they are doing, how they are thinking, and what are they planning moving forward? My friend Whitney Clapper is the Director of Community Relationships and Impact at Patagonia, where she's worked since 2015. In her words, she works to hold space for people to come together and listen to one another so that we can work in unity for a just and better world. The world is changing extremely quickly and there are big questions being asked. It's clear no one anywhere has all of the answers and there are no quick fixes. But what can help us move in the right direction? What can we do to help save the planet? And what can we learn from companies like Patagonia? That's what we'll be talking about today. So grab that favorite beverage or throw on those running shoes. And here is Whitney. Hey, Whitney, welcome to Tie on Earth. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. Yes, thanks so much for having me. It's nice to see and hear you. It's I been know. a little bit. <laughs> it has, it has. And thanks to Michael for putting us in touch all those years ago. And we sort of keep having these meetings and these catch-ups and our sort of inspiration sessions to just kind of see what each other are up to. So it's lovely to have you here and making it a little bit more public so that other people can get your pearls of wisdom. Oh, well, that's nice of you to say. <laughs> yes, Michael Jagger deserves a big shout out for the yeah, connection and reconnection. Wonderful. So where are you? I always like to ask this because I do speak to people all over the world in so many different corners of the planet. And it's just lovely to get a little bit of context for our listeners. So where, where are you sitting? Where am I sitting? I am literally sitting in the family, living, dining, <laughs> multi-purpose room <laughs> in my house and uh, here calling in as a guest on unceded territory of the Chumash in Southern California, currently known as Ojai, California. That's a nice way of positioning it. It's perfect for our chat today, actually. There's so much that I'm excited to learn from you and get our listeners to hear about. But I think before we get there, maybe we can get a little bit of the the background to who you are, life before Patagonia. Yeah, and just a little bit about you, Whitney. I know this is always one of those, it's like, where do you want to start? <laughs> I was uh, born. <laughs> I know. Yeah, seriously, I'm not going to tell you when I was born, although whatever, it's just a number. Okay, life before Patagonia. I mean, I, I for me, I grew up in the Midwest, um, just outside St. Louis, Missouri, 
and across the river in Illinois. And it was a small, I mean, really ridiculously small little town that we were there because my father took a position as an English professor at this really small liberal arts college that somehow is in the middle of cornfields in the Midwest. So they, my father is from Virginia, my mom was from Connecticut, but, but somehow they found themselves in the Midwest because of my dad going to school and then finding this job. So my brother and I both grew up kind of on this college campus that was a, a global college. So we had people from all around the world that attended and I literally grew up in this environment. And so I, it was one of those where I was very, very exposed to kind of environmental and global issues while also you know, the minute you stepped off campus, it I mean, it was a very conservative small town. So we, we had a KKK chapter right wow. down the street from the school. Um, the Mississippi River was was right there. A lot of Confederate and kind of racist mentality around that area as well. So it was this weird dualistic world where I grew up kind of incubated in the, <laughs> and, you know, on this college campus with all these incredible beliefs and wisdom. And then you step outside and here is this other very real world. And then at the time, St. Louis was also a pretty challenging city to be in as well. A ton of racism, a lot of redlining. And we always kind of went into St. Louis through East St. Louis, which was a very challenging part of the city and very clear, you know, have and have nots and racism all around. So it was an interesting place to grow up. And I think really that childhood, I started there only because it's it's really shaped so much of who I've totally. turned into and become. So that was my childhood. I thought I would find myself in order to kind of process life. I would take myself on really long runs through all sorts of hills and cornfields and, you know, all around the area, bike rides. My family was always pretty, pretty active. And my parents were of the mentality of if you wanted something, go get a job to make the money and you have a bike, use it to get to that job. So that was kind of like how I was raised. And that's yeah. also kind of informed how I do life as well. Right or wrong, I will say <laughs> there's some unhealthy tendencies there. But so then graduating, was Patagonia your first job? I mean, I just sort of, uh, there was obviously, that makes sense as to why you are where you are in the conversation that we're about to have. But in that point between childhood growing up and getting a job at Patagonia, what were some sort of stepping stones just to kind of help guide that journey? Yeah, good, good question. Um, very, I mean, illogical and like perfect at the same time, right? I graduated with um, a focus in sociology and biology. The only business class I ever took was business writing because I enjoyed <laughs> writing. I shied away from every business class imaginable, hated marketing, just thought it was so silly and kind of fake. So I, I focused really on people. I've always enjoyed people and getting to know people's stories. I had an incredible couple of, of incredible sociology professors who studied criminal law and, and was an active you know, lawyer in St. Louis. Wow. I'm often for wow. kind of those most impacted by the injustices of the law. So quite often Black people. And so he really informed a lot of, of why I got into sociology 
Um, I had another sociology professor who was really focused on just women's studies and that side of it. And, you know, had kind of that mentality of fuck men, you know, we don't, need, we don't need them. And I always had this sense of it's, you can't really do it without, I mean, we kind of need everyone to make change. So yeah. it was an, a, you know, an interesting. interesting approach for me yeah. to kind of come to these realizations on my own in school. And then I really, I loved kind of the the balance of sociology where it feels like you're in an indefinite debate, right, about humanity, then I needed that that clear cut and dry um, science as well to balance out my life. So that's where biology came in, you know, having answers in biology that were right and wrong versus where those, the side of my brain that was just debates all the time. So I, I balanced myself with, with those two avenues, finished school, had this moment, of course, you know, a couple of weeks out from graduation, I never really knew what I wanted to do. I had worked at a battered women's shelter in college that scratched my itch to be some in the social work field that was really challenging. So that was kind of became one of my what I don't necessarily want to do for a career. I ended up moving to New Mexico, living in Albuquerque, because I really what I love to do and how I kind of process the world was through activity and through sport. So became a substitute teacher in the Albuquerque public school system, which I don't know the official rank of the Albuquerque public school system. I have to imagine it's pretty low. And I think that's when I realized, like, gosh, the, the children that need the most love are those that quite often actually have parents that are also teachers. That was my experience in this system. So this idea of maybe someday being outdoor educator or a teacher started to kind of diminish a little bit. And I was nowhere near having kids at this point, but I just thought I don't want to be that teacher that doesn't have enough to give to either my kids in the classroom or my own kids, right? And then my my dad unfortunately died pretty unexpectedly. And that kind of spent me into this other like, wow, what am I what am I going to do with my life? And it was at that same time that I had reconnected with a friend that I had run cross country with in college. And she was now working for Merrill Footwear, which admittedly at the time, I didn't actually really even know the brand very well. I knew my aunt loved Merrill. That was kind of as much as I knew. I knew it was in the outdoor industry. And I, I had this moment of like, you know, outdoor industry, that feels, I resonate with that. I feel like yeah. I, there's something in outdoor industry that I love. And that kind of took me back to growing up at this school because it was such a global school and, and quite often of privilege. There were a lot of people that wore Patagonia at this college. At the end of every semester at college, kids would clean out their dorms and they'd throw whatever they don't want in these things called share boxes. And anyone could come by, right, and pick out clothes or lamp, whatever it was that was in these boxes. And my mom and I had this like ritual of every, at the end of every semester, we'd, we'd check out share boxes because there's a lot of gems in yeah. there, right? So my, all of my, my early Patagonia came wow, from, from share boxes. And of course, it never fit me because here I'm like seventh grade, right? And and I'm wearing college kid stuff, but I didn't care because it was Patagonia. And so there had always been this kind of fascination and love for Patagonia, right? I, I remember like the salmon catalog from, I don't know, early 80s, you know, and, and just the catalogs being this like gem that I experienced growing up. And then you fast forward to here, I'm approaching this idea of joining the outdoor industry um, in New Mexico, having this moment of like, okay, my whole world has just shifted. My, my debt, my both parents are gone at this point. Being given this opportunity to interview for a job at Merrill 
regardless of the fact that my resume had nothing, like it was not anything of what a, a normal, probably business or corporation would want to see in hiring someone, but had had a boss who took a chance on me. And, and that was how I kind of got history. in. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so now, I mean, that's really, really interesting. And I, I'm loving these stories because they're going to, they're going to be a nice segue to one of my next questions. But before we get there, I just, what are you doing now? So I have been with Patagonia. There's still some ebbs and, and flows, you know, essentially Merrill turned into Chaco footwear, which turned into Patagonia footwear, which turned into kind of my own marketing storytelling business for a while, which then took me back to Patagonia. So it was a little bit of a circuitous journey. I joined Patagonia in 2015 as as the brand manager and at that point the the brand team was brand new for for Patagonia we had always had marketers per sport but never a brand team so that brand team evolved it you know as as teams do that are new to companies um took a variety of different natural ebbs and flows and, and shape shifted a number of different times to the point of me becoming kind of enviro marketer and really focusing on that um, and from there, shifting most recently into my my new role, which is also new for the the company, which is really um, it, it's community work. It is figuring out how to be in and with communities in a regenerative way, and and figuring out what impact likes what 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 impact looks like, what partnerships look like, relationships, that sort of thing. Whether it is with nonprofits or with um, sport communities or with those that are new to Patagonia. So figuring out exactly what that means and and what Patagonia's place is within community. So it's it's a new space for me and the brand. I think what drew me originally was this sense of out of any company organization in the outdoor industry who might be willing to try it and take risks to do the right thing, it is Patagonia. And I, yeah. I would say that's still true to this day. I think that there are many reasons why we're able to continue to kind of try things out and take risks that, that is, are somewhat new, unique to other companies in the outdoor industry. You know, being privately owned is a big part of that. But I think still having, still having the original owners involved and helping to guide um, and now their children helping to guide, there is still this sense of doing the right thing will then yield the right results, including the money needed to fund our activism. What drew me to Patagonia still remains in some cases why I'm there. I think there's also some challenges with that. And I think what I'm most grappling with is, I don't know if it's unique to Patagonia necessarily. I, I think it's here we have this goal as a business, our mission, you know, our purpose statement is to be in business to save the home planet. Yet we're, we're also still a capitalistic company, right? We are still a company that thrives on selling product, which then funds, you know, our activism. And so can you have both? Like, can you save the home planet while also destroying it at the same time, I think is what I and, and many others are still grappling with at, at Patagonia. And I, again, I don't know if that's unique to Patagonia necessarily. I just think it, where where I am in my work with communities and often working with those that are most impacted by the climate crisis, but haven't been the ones to contribute to the climate crisis. How do we reckon being a multi, you know, nearly multi-billion dollar business while also wanting to be in service to people on the planet? 
Yeah, I know no, that's there's a, some really big, big, big questions. No, big questions. Exactly. And actually, that's, yeah. that's the base of what I'm wanting to prod a little bit, because a lot of companies and a lot of people have the same questions. And I think what's interesting is whenever I've talked to anyone, and I mean, I, I think this is number 48 of podcasts, I often ask people um, who are leading companies, divisions, you know, in their own way, change makers, what companies do you admire? And Patagonia, of course, is the first company to come to mind. And to have the purpose, this purpose, which obviously you were well before, you know, any other companies that were standing for something in this way. I mean, Patagonia, you know, to be in business to save the whole planet is a very grand purpose statement. But you've lived up to it in many ways. And I just wonder, just with the, I've got so many questions, but I think I'm going to start with, you just talked about your role. You talked about your role being collaboration, citizenship, community. Is this new vision going to change in any way where Patagonia is moving to just or shifting? Just yeah. really quickly. And the other thing is, what was that prompt? What's changed for Patagonia to now change gears slightly? Yeah. And I think, you know, I think I will caveat in that I am not necessarily speaking on behalf, on behalf of the company of, yeah, in some yeah. of these. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. this is my... This is my reflection, right? This yeah. is yeah. what yeah. I I feel is is happening. Um, it's not a company statement. Yeah, you know, I, I think those are all great questions, and I think I think a big thing that is happening. I mean, one just the urgency of the state of the planet, right? The urgency of the climate crisis, the science that is telling us we have, what, less than 10 years. That is is a big part of why we had shifted our purpose statement from kind of building the best product, do no necessary harm, okay. into we are, we are in business to save the home planet. So that shift was somewhat sudden from our owners, from my perspective, because of the urgency needed to really do anything about the climate crisis currently. Yeah. You know, what that did for us was have us all a kind of across the company, across all brands and cross-functional avenues in the company have to do a little bit of, okay, we need to pause on what we've been doing as business norm and business routine in order to really answer, are we doing everything we can to really be in service to the home planet. I think, you know, a big part of the community work comes in because right or wrong, we didn't call out people and the home planet. And I, I think that's still this internal debate, you know, should we have, should we not have, regardless of what people think, there are those of us that feel like in order to save the home planet, I mean, it, it is going to take kind of what I almost learned, you know, back in college of like, well, it's not just about women's right and only being led by women, right? <laughs> like we have to do this together. And yeah. so I think totally. this community work is an extension. You're totally right. It's an extension of what I had been doing within marketing because as the environmental marketer, I would purposely choose not to focus and marketing speak target audiences that that were our core Patagonia audiences. We knew our core audience was along from the start. They'd been there for, you know, 50 plus years. They will jump if we ask them to jump. So I, my goal in any of the environmental marketing was never to kind of focus on those people. It was really to focus on the value aligned people that were dealing with the same sort of things that we might be talking about in a marketing campaign, which often meant people who'd never walked into a Patagonia store, people who probably couldn't even afford Patagonia, and people who may never have even heard of the brand. And what that did was 
obviously kind of grow our audiences, but really it brought more people into the fight for people and the planet and started centering, you know, those that, that are, have been dealing with the climate crisis way longer than probably a majority of us at Patagonia have been dealing with it because they are the ones that also have the solutions. And so it kind of has been shifting our own narrative, right, to, to get out of our kind of white privileged silo ways and really open the space for, for more kind of collective, unified engagement. That we're just getting started with that, right? And I think, you know, we're a 50, almost 50-year-old 50 conservation organization. And I remember when I first started, like, that's, that's our comfort zone, right? The public lands, waters, we are learning that people have always been in these places that we've been fighting for and learning what it looks like to center people over, over place and recognizing that by doing that, place is also saved, right? Biodiversity is also saved. So this is where we are currently and learning along the way. I'm covered in goosebumps, actually. It's really interesting hearing that. And when we spoke before, I hadn't clocked that. It's the citizenship it's the, we have to learn from others. We can't do this alone. We need to come together. More heads are better than one. We don't have all the answers. Let's be humble. Let's be vulnerable. Let's be human. Right. That brings me to this big topic that I'm wanting to, I'm, I'm grappling with it. We've been in the age of competition, right? But society, driven by some big companies, but also obviously climate change, of these companies in Patagonia being one of the major ones, realized a long time ago that society is realizing that we have to move to an age of collaboration and citizenship. We're looking at the dominant values that were uh, in this. And actually, it's Gert Hofstede. I'm probably saying his name terribly wrong, but cultural dimension theory. You know, the dominant leadership values have been more masculine. So, you know, such as achievement, ambition, power, assertiveness. But now we're needing to move to more feminine values. Right. So, people, you know, people, empathy, nature, the environment, collectiveness. You know, what I'm grappling with is there's this move that everyone is aware that the world has to go in this direction. Now, big companies like Patagonia is, you know, you were in one place and now you're actually moving to this area, too. But yet the status quo, you know, the corporation is still focused on and you touched on it earlier. Competition, money, turnover, profits, growth. Right which is again back into sort of, you know, growth uh, values. You know, the main goal of business is to make money. We need to make money. And, you know, but it's the feminine energy in business is largely ignored, but it could result actually in a more balanced and integrated organization and planet. And I just wonder, you know, Pat, as I said, Patagonia has always been a reference for so many people and so many conversations. And I just wonder, what can we learn from Patagonia? And I mean, this is the million dollar question. Obviously, you're also grappling with it and you also don't know. But how have you in this world where the bottom line is like that base of success? How has Patagonia like, protected the integrity of your purpose when it was what it is? And also when you're looking at where it's going, what are those conversations that are happening? Do we have days to answer this question? <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, I mean, those are all the right questions. And I don't know if I have answers, you know, that will satiate you or, or listeners. I feel like I can answer from the department I sit in, which is our environment department. I will say the little I know from our product teams and our sustainability teams. I mean, I think that there has been and continues to be this desire to do the right thing, which often is counterintuitive to 
business mindset, which I would argue the traditional business mindset and the mindset you're you're speaking about kind of that has been identified with male direction, I would argue is white supremacy. I would argue is really like rooted in colonialism. And yeah, so I couldn't agree more. The further you get away from the colonial mindset, the more human people become. Yes. So for, forget gender, you know, That's I mean, this nice. is like, I agree. That's beautiful. Really getting into the root of it. We're dealing with colonization still. We're still yes, de- we dealing with white supremacy. And so I think learning more about the root causes will help us all figure out how to respond and be better. So I will say that. I will say that is also where we're having to have difficult conversations at Patagonia because we are still predominantly white and privileged in as many books as I may read, like I will never know what it's like to be a person of color. So getting into kind of the the root of why we're here and what guides business mentality, the grind mentality. I mean, all of these is white, it's white supremacy, right? And so I think we have to call that out. I personally wish we are better at having these conversations, but they're, they're uncomfortable, right? And so they aren't a first language for Patagonia by any means. So we are in the thick of that, especially with our Enviro team. I think we are, we have brought in kind of people, adjust, the Justice Funders team is an organization that we're working with to really help us wade through all of this. And I think there's a lot of people that don't necessarily equate, you know, why we do things the way we've done things with white supremacy, because that's hard to say that we're coming from like operating in that mentality. but. I think as we get to the root of these different nuances of how we've done business, it's not unique to Patagonia. It is how business has been done. And that's right. Those are the systems within which we are working, whether we know it or not. So, so there's that. I think what, you know, what we are doing well is willing to kind of operate from this space of curiosity and willing to operate from this space of, are we building product the best way we can build it? Are we choosing the right materials, knowing that, microfibers and microplastics are everywhere and in the oceans, you know, and we make clothes out of plastic. You know, I I think we're willing to kind of have these hard conversations with how we've done things versus where we want to be going in the next 50 years. And we're really in that right now since next year is our 50 year anniversary. So I think we've always kind of been questioning our practices along the way. I think we continue to do that. I think we also recognize that being in business doesn't always mean we have to make new products either. You know, we have a Warnware program, which is kind of our care and repair program. So how do we extend the life of the clothes we make? We've always built clothes with durability as a principle. How can we continue to extend that? So it's not always the new you have to buy. You know, I think we have always been a company that has really valued nonprofit organizations and working with those small kind of local organizations because we recognize that there are so many fights for people on the planet that we aren't the experts in, but want to make sure those groups that are are doing the right thing to take care of people on the planet and their communities that they have the funds they need. So we've been giving, you know, away 1% of funds since 1985. And then there we're a part of the B Corporation. We are a B Corp, meaning we have basically committed to a high level of standards and criteria that ensure our practices, our care for kind of employees and our values that we stay committed to those indefinitely, regardless of who's kind of running the company. And so those are all ways I feel like we have 
done the right thing and their their actions any company can take, but it kind of shows our commitment to people on the planet. Totally. Maybe you've already answered this, but I'm just because it is also something that's come up a lot in uh, conversations that I'm having, but it's this move to being more human. It's moved to being, you know, a more human centric organization. And I'm just curious to know, kind of, again, this is you, Whitney, not necessarily you working at Patagonia, but I guess having been at Patagonia for so long as well, obviously you've it's, it's a long time that you've been at a company that has a clear purpose that is genuinely asking a lot of questions. What is a human-centric organization in your mind? Yeah, you know, that's a fascinating question. I almost want to like put out a survey at Patagonia to see what we get back. To me, I, I don't know if we are there as Patagonia. From my perspective, I think where we are striving to go as kind of this Enviro team you know, headed by our, our VP of activism, Enviroactivism, is really centering those most impacted by the environmental crisis, which is the climate crisis. And so to me, being human-centered in my work and kind of the community work and what I think is most important is really figuring out how do we bring in more voices from the front line? How do we bring more, oftentimes it's, it is Indigenous-led organizations and movements, it's BIPOC voices, because quite often it is Black and Brown that are most impacted by the climate crisis, which means we need to get out of the way. And what does it look like for a company that does quite often have a pretty powerful voice in a lot of avenues? What happens if we don't actually talk as much, but we open up our avenues for for those that do have the solutions and are, have been hit the hardest to, to share their voice? And so to me, a human-centric organization, it's an organization that's figured out how to bring those voices in yeah. and what our place is within those movements. And that's like an active conversation for us yeah. right now. So this is a question that I ask a lot, not on every podcast, it depends on who I'm speaking to, but it's kind of funny asking you this question because Patagonia is always the answer. Do you have any examples of companies that you admire and that inspire you? I'm going to answer in probably a different way because I think that there are many businesses that are trying hard to figure out what doing the right thing means for them, especially kind of in this fingers crossed, post-COVID era. I think the companies and I admire the most, it's less about a, a company. Like, I don't know if I could point out a company necessarily. I think I can point out a lot of people and individuals within companies that are trying to do the right thing. And I would say that those are also the voices that are probably banging their heads against the wall the most as well, because it's hard to shift a company. But I do feel like there are those that are willing to try things in, in maybe a, a different and, and potentially unpopular way because they know in their heart it's the right thing to do. And so I guess if I had to say companies, right, this is my wish for Patagonia, right? Like we, we are the 1%, we've done the 1% distribution for years. We are B Corp, you know, we're fair trade. Like there's all these things that we have done to be the kind of the doing the right thing in business. We're not employee owned yet. And there's part of me that wonders how that might shift if we became employee owned. I don't know, and I'd have to do more research on what that actually would mean, but I feel like there might be more investment from those individuals within the company that are trying to make sure we do the right thing and, and really be that human-centered company. 
So I, I kind of wonder what employee owned could look like for Patagonia. I think, you know, the New Belgiums, the companies that are big, that are also employee owned, I'm always intrigued to kind of watch and see how they, what they focus on and how they do business that might be different from, from those that are publicly traded or private, but, but not employee owned. Yeah, no, and you've, you've answered the question actually, and it's really interesting. I had a podcast recently with a, a good friend of mine called John Alexander, and I don't know if you've heard the podcast, but I do highly recommend it. Uh, he's just launched a book called Citizens. It's a fantastic chat with him. His book is fantastic. And I'm just going to take an excerpt from our chat because he said, to be a citizen, it's the idea of the individual in society. It's not about being a consumer. It's about being human and what the right thing to do is. The idea is someone who can and wants to shape the world and society that they want to be a part of. It brings energy and creativity to bear on the world that they live in. A citizen is about tapping into the resources that every everyone has and can find the best outcomes as a society as a whole. And I think that's really interesting because all these different avenues are coming to the same place and companies like Patagonia are saying it, you and your division are saying it. If we're looking at, you know, is it one specific company? And I think that actually just reflecting on the answers to all these challenges that we're facing, it's not a one answer fits all. It's activating those change makers in different places. And, you know, that's what this podcast is about as well, actually. It's just inspiring people to know that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, if you're part of a big company, if you are on your own, if you're an individual, if you're just uh, whoever you are, it's activating that citizenship, isn't it? Yeah, I love that quote. That's it's a perfect quote. And I think that, yeah, that indirectly is my answer <laughs> too. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's less it's, about companies, it's individuals, it's citizens. And I believe the end of the quote was something around calling out we all have access to resources. I would say that we don't necessarily all have the same, we don't have the same access to resources. And so I think part of the human centric is how do we show up equitably? How do we, you know, help those communities that maybe don't have the same resources, but should have yeah. the same resources. We just spend a lot of time in Alaska and the law in Alaska, it is not equitable when it comes to indigenous communities versus white and I would say that's probably the same in many states. So it comes back to really needing to kind of question the systems within which we're working. And then I think, you know, you'll be able to answer uh, the question on which companies and which people are continuing to do it right as we really navigate the systems within which we're working. So if you were to choose just a couple takeaways for our listeners to make their ability to be change makers a possibility, what would you what would you leave people with? Just mm -hmm. to put this into context. You know, there's so many people who are leading divisions, leading companies, they're feeling a little bit lost. They're wondering, oh my God, you know, Patagonia is my Mecca, Patagonia is my North Star. How do I get there? And I just wonder, you know, as a takeaway of someone who is trying to do the right thing and trying to get closer to where we need to get to. I guess I get nervous sometimes when I hear, like anytime a brand, a person, whomever is put on a pedestal, I worry that people then try to achieve that same pedestal status, but it's not authentic to who they are or who that company is, right? And so as much as it's nice to hear, you know, the praise for Patagonia, and I, I get it, I don't want people to think they can't do it just because they're not Patagonia. And I, I think it comes back to what is your own purpose? What is your own vision? And what are you uniquely good at doing? 
the last thing we need is for it all to become like we don't need all the companies to become Patagonia, right? Like that's that's going to be its own monolith of like it's not going to be serving the greater good. Like what we need is it to be in community, right? And we we need you know the gardener who's who and we need the person who is the marketer. We need you know we totally. need all the different people totally. in their own unique ways to come together for that greater good. And so I, I think while you know there can be these things that. Patagonia is doing well that people can kind of learn from, like use us as a way to learn, but don't be so focused on like, trying to replicate, figuring out your own purpose, even individual purpose. Like I do a lot of work on my own individual purpose, let alone Patagonia's purpose, because we need the individuals to create the companies, to create the community. Totally. So I, I think that that's how I'd answer that one. That's yeah. my takeaway is spend time on yourself and then you then, you know, learn how to use the voice within a company setting. And that becomes a, you know, that it only grows from there. So yeah, beautiful. Totally agree. Well, we have come to the end of the podcast, but I'm just wondering before we sign off, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to tell our listeners? I realize your listeners know a lot about Thai but I feel like so much of what you're doing at Thai is another beautiful way of doing it right and well. So thank you. I guess I, <laughs> I, I mean, it's a lot coming from Patagonia. <laughs> I mean, I'm just a person at Patagonia, but I like still, <laughs> I mean, I think what do you want the audience to walk away from here? Like what is your wish in this conversation? What do you want people to go do after. Yeah, I love that question. God, you are the first person to turn the tables on me. That's really great. That's a really nice question. And I think I would say the last few podcasts that I've done, interestingly, they've all ended with this kind of being their takeaway when I've asked them this question. But I would actually say that that is what Ty's all about. I think what we're all about is cultivating agency for people, help them to unleash their purpose, actually. So it's helping people realize what makes them amazing. And you actually have to step out of your comfort zone in order to be able to do that, right? You need to do things differently, feel that pressure to then unleash a lot of those possibilities and the potential that you have. But I think it's providing, it's cultivating that agency and and showing people, oh my God, look how amazing you are. Look at what you can do and then go and do it because now is what we've got. And I think it's, it's everyone can be that hero and everyone can be that change maker. And we don't need Patagonia. We don't need Michelle Obama or we don't need, you know, whoever it is that you admire and you think is doing amazing stuff. It can be literally you in your role at your company being that change maker. And that's why I'm that's why I have this podcast, because I really want people to realize that there's so many amazing people in so many different corners of the earth in their own unique ways doing amazing things. So that was not planned, listeners. I didn't know that Whitney was going to ask me that question, but you know, everything that you've said is basically that. And yeah, that's what Ty's all about. I love that. Yeah. What if everyone actually recognized their own potential? We would be in a different world if totally. we then acted upon it as well. <laughs> so I, And realize that part. if you don't, yeah, exactly. And if you don't like something or if you think that the status quo, the way that it is, isn't right, then change it. Uh, Jim Carroll, he's a, he's an incredible guy. He was the chairman of uh, BBH London for a really long time. And actually he's the last podcast before yours. So he's up now. I highly recommend listening to it. It's amazing. But he ends it. I asked him, you know, what do you want the listeners to take away? And he, I love what he said. He said, 
I was really into punk music. Uh, there was an ad, I think, that sort of showed three keys. This is E, G, and F or whatever, you know, and showed what they are, you know, on a guitar. They said, you know what? Don't, don't think that we're amazing. Don't, you know, keep, go form your own band. That's all you need. You just need these three keys. Go form the band. The time's now. And I think yeah. that's it. You just need your confidence. You need your purpose. You need to know what you're amazing at. And then just go form a band. Exactly. And but yeah, you because you have to you have to know, you have to believe, then you have to go do, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. I love it. I, oh. I think I have like hundreds of bands, and I think everyone needs to have hundreds of bands. That's how we show up in community. So it's great. Oh, Wendy, I could be talking to you forever, but uh, I do, you know, I have to wrap it up at some point, but I am so grateful to your to you and the work that you're doing and for just giving me your time, sharing just what you're up to with our listeners. And yeah, I think a lot of people will be really inspired from this chat. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for everything you're doing as well. You're an inspiration to me time and time again. <laughs> I'm going to go back and listen to these other podcasts. Yeah, you'll love these so, podcasts. So. I highly, and anyone who's listening, there's, yeah, I mean, there's so many good ones there, but these, these ones are, are definitely, if, you, if this resonates, then they're good ones. So Awesome. Thanks so much. It was nice to thank catch you. up. Talk soon. Bye. Hey, everyone. This is Philippa again. I hope you enjoyed listening. Now, this is your chance to get involved with Thai. If you work in the commercial world, whatever your profession, your position, or your experience, then Thai could be for you. You may have been in business for decades, but have always felt there's another way. Or you may just have a few years experience, but want to do more. Equally, if you want to create game-changing employees and see your company impact the world, we've got you covered. Thai has never been more necessary than right now, and you can be a part of it. Reach out to me at philippa at theinternationalexchange.co.uk and I can tell you more. Or join the Thai Accelerator info session for more information. Apply.thaiaccelerator.com. Better leaders, better companies, better world. I'm your host, Philippa White. This podcast has been co-produced by Berna Vieira and me, music by Berna Vieira, and artwork by Kelps Fahais. I hope we'll meet again soon. <laughs>